and welcome to another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. Joining me on the other line, since an alarm went off his computer lab, he has found his way here. In the meantime, it's John McMahon. Hi, Danielle. Uh, You're a special guest with us today. So joining us on the other line, she just sent us a datagram from the virtual highway, (laughs) and now she's here. It's Emily Crandall. Hello, very good. Those those laughs were genuine. (laughs) Yes, yes, it's really all we wanted in life. We're very excited to have Emily here. Emily is is many things, and there are many reasons why she's here. Emily Crandall is a political science PhD from the CUNY Graduate Center. She is a feminist political theorist. She teaches at Hunter College and Queens College in CUNY. She's one of the reasons I got through grad school and is a dear old friend of mine. Uh, my co-host on the mostly defunct, always already critical theory podcast. And one of the co-hosts of the active... The text is still active. Yeah, the text, the group text is still going. Uh, Nothing else is. And the co-host of the Stuck in Stony Brook podcast, which we'll be getting to later in the episode. Emily, we're so thrilled that you're here with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am so... thrilled to have watched a television instead of read a text, read a text, watched a text, consumed a text in a different medium. Um, and also just to, to see both of your faces and to be chatting with you about all things dorky and smart and dumb. Great. Yeah. I love it. That yeah. actually love perfectly this. encapsulates everything that, that we're about here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I know. Emily, Emily, <laughs> Emily's like, I've, I've been here before. I know mm-hmm. these people. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about today, the Americans season two, episode seven, ARPANET directed by Kevin Dowling and written by Joshua Brand. Danielle's going to have an IMDB summary for us. And then Emily, I, I have a question for you. Great. Okay, so the IMDb summary for Season 2, Episode 7 is that Philip uses his agent, Charles Duluth, to help him gain access to an early precursor to the internet so that the KGB can bug American government communications. Nina faces the threat of a potential FBI polygraph exam, bringing her closer to KGB KGB colleague Oleg. All right, we'll get, we'll get to all of those closer indeed. Very, very close. Very so, close. Emily, you are on the guest uh, of Not Quite Great Books podcast, one of the ones who had not seen The Americans before we were like, come on this podcast. So indeed. given that, and I believe you've seen only the episode preceding this while jet-logged or a hazy sleep on a plane, and mm-hmm. then this one watched more intensively, what is this show about and why do you think Danielle and I like it? Okay, I think this show is about spies who spy. One, two um, for two. Yeah, and great. maybe not everybody knows who else is a spy, and so there's some spy on spy spying, perhaps. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. I'm pretty sure it's set during the Cold War. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I my guess is that you like it because. It is, there are probably lots of opportunities for hot takes on uh, what, is this an American like production team? Yes, sure is. On what like an American production um, thinks about what happened during the Cold War. Um, Some like hot takes for like what the audience is supposed to be learning about, about the Cold War. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. My guess is that you also like it because it's hot, se- like a little sexy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Lots of like hot people running around being spies and like yep. banging. So um, I think that you probably, haven't missed yet. It's probably <laughs> like, like of equal 
or more importance than <laughs> the politics is my my other guess. <laughs> Honestly, but, but really, Emily, isn't the personal always political? Ooh, oh yeah, and, you're and fired. Will, <laughs> you're hired. <laughs> oh my god. So oh, speaking yeah. speaking of that, I let's just, go with sorry. It. When you just said that, that overlay <laughs> in my mind over that like last like still of that scene when they're in the bed, Nina and oh, is yeah, this okay. a spoiler? Can I Oleg? say it? Olyeg? Yeah. Are, are, if yeah, people yeah. are listening to this, like we're assuming they have watched the yeah, episode. Yeah, great. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if we were like going to you know, go chronologically or whatever. Yeah, but that, that assumes yeah. way more structure than actually okay. exists. Yeah. They bang and yeah. that, that little they still. They sure do of the like drawing out shot. I just pictured that underneath your, the personal is political. <laughs> so, so may- maybe we can make that meme to put on Twitter. Uh, I think for, we should. This episode when, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> when it comes out in eight years. Um, all right. So I, I think one it. of the questions for this episode, and this is not, not unconnected to the personal is political <laughs> is Danielle, are there things that could link or assemble together the Nina plotline, the Lucia Elizabeth Larrick plotline, and the whole ARPANET internet plotline? Yeah, I think this is, those are the three sort of like big clusters of things that happen in this episode. And I think that one way to think about those three things in conversation with each other is perhaps to take each of them as places where we see the a human attempt to control or exert control over a machine or technology or to turn other humans into cogs in their machines and then the chaos and volatility that that erupts as a result because um none of these things can be fully contained or controlled yeah, I think that that makes sense. It's almost like we had talked about that ahead of time. So, Emily, in what like, plot line do you think the dynamic that Danielle just articulated is like most visible or most resonant? I This is so fascinating because when while you were talking about that, I was thinking to myself, wait, so how does like the weird Henry like subplot Ooh, fit into that? Too? Yeah, because I'm wondering, there. like, I, I, you know, again... I, this is the single episode of this television show that I have watched. Um, but I, I was kind of struck by the juxtaposition of that with the rest of it. Cause I, I couldn't tell who he was. Was he spying like with an eye toward gaining something in particular, or is it just a sort of like acting out a, a sort of response to some other kind of trigger that happened in a past episode? And then like, what do we, you know, the kind of ocular as a technology yeah. or mm-hmm. kind of control and, and politics, right? Like what does it mean to like be spying on, on someone who doesn't know you're spying on them? Right. And like what, what's kind of at play there. So I, I hadn't even thought about that in line with this theme until you started laying it out just now. And I was like, wait, how does this fit in? I feel like there's some connection, but maybe we can kind of unpack that as we move through, through the discussion. No, there Um, definitely is that there. Let's actually stop and explore that because I think that like the volatility there is a theme that Danielle and I have hit on constantly, which is even if the kids 
don't know what their parents do. They're yeah. so saturated by like the exactly. affect and like the psychic, pol- psychopolitical dynamics of what their parents do that they just reenact things unknowingly or unconsciously yeah. of then their parents' activities. They're just like constantly in the mirror stage. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god! Oh, little do you know how much this show loves the like psychologically salient mirror shot. Um. Oh, loves <laughs> it so much. Yeah. Well, and I also think just to like to build on on that point and to think a little bit about like the the ocular as technology, right? Like surveillance, the layer of Henry sort of like absorbing and enacting the the things that he sees his parents doing or like Mm -hmm. the things his parents are doing that maybe he doesn't even fully see Mm -hmm. but then there's also the there's sort of a meta level happening here too where it's like henry looking through a telescope is also like doing some symbolic work for like the things that are happening Mm. in this show the role of different technologies and how central they are in terms of both communication and control to the the spying that's happening that's like the engine that's driving the whole show so Mm. henry is also in a way enacting sort of like the central premise of the show without being necessarily say like fully cognizant of that. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting too, because I I feel like one thing that always just sort of, this is going to sound really stupid, but just go with me. One thing that just kind of constantly baffles me about like ancient empires and kingdoms and things is like, okay, so a king sat in that castle on the top of a hill, never left the castle, never walked down the hill once, but like, ruled all this territory like how with no knowledge of any of the people or anything so just utterly dependent on who brings him right usually him the the right intel but how would you even have confidence that the things that are yours are yours it just like i don't know maybe that's just modernity like indoctrinating (laughs) me into its premises but like i feel like what's interesting about this episode of television that I watched is that, right. Like ostensibly spying is both about retrieving knowledge, but when you don't know who, where anyone's real loyalties are, there's this kind of like bind where not any of the knowledge that you might want is still sort of cloaked behind this other shroud of like mystery or secrecy. So like, what are you even doing when you're spying? Right. Like, and if you have to be so committed to your character that you don't speak Russian at home. And in fact, you speak with a beautiful, you know, wherever Carrie Russell's from accent, like (laughs) what, what even is real? I don't (laughs) And that's, that's a wonderful point. And like the shroud or the secrecy or the mystery in Henry's specific act is connected to like the, sh- the way that the Jennings themselves use the trappings of the nuclear, like heteronormative family mm-hmm. as the cover, as the shroud for their mission. Because whereas when Philip and Elizabeth are looking out on their neighborhood around them, their like object of their ocular power or whatever are the Beemans, our stand. And by the way, Emily laughed so hard when we explained the contrivance <laughs> of they live across the street from Stan. Um, yeah. So. Amazing. <laughs> like who, who came up with that? I, I want to <laughs> shake your hand. <laughs> Whereas Henry, when he's looking out, he is training his ocular power towards the, 
seemingly more genuine nuclear heteronormative family with a couple of kids and the golden retriever that lives on the block, which he doesn't understand fully. He doesn't have access to, but like Mm -hmm. psychically he, you know, unconsciously knows that he doesn't have access to that. So Henry's like, is interest is like enacting the desire for that, which he does not have or cannot have given the way these like operations of power are structuring his psychic life, familial life, emotional life. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would also, I would just add to that and say that, that the way that he specifically enacts that is by seeking the video game. Right. And yeah. like he, which is the thing that his parents have denied him that he desires, that he wants, that he like, that he is lacking. Oh man, there's so much Lacan happening here. Like, <laughs> it's hard for me. <laughs> Don't worry. It's very appropriate not- given this mic. Yeah, which that's, is the first always already true. podcast mic. That's it, right. It's named Lacan. It's yeah. oh, I didn't know that. Christened thus. Many, many moons ago. Gosh, yeah. like 2016 or something. 15. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. The point I was after before I derailed myself with like a Lacan flashback. <laughs> <laughs> Just like brings me back to grad school. Thing that Henry, the way that Henry is sort of enacting the, the, the like lack or absence in his life is upon this like piece of technology, which I think mm-hmm. gets us back into the the question of like technology control and like human relationship to those different, the different mechanisms that are worked out. So Emily, I mean, I kind of took you up on your offer to, to detour us onto a Henry exploration, but I think you were going to go somewhere else when I was like, Oh no, let's follow this fleeting thought. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and we can get into this too in a in a bit sillier fashion when we get to the the, <laughs> the sort of bin of stuff, right? <laughs> um, or borrowed nostalgia. Um, but I think the the description of the internet is really funny oh and also interesting, right? That like the who is the person who explains it? Is he a scientist? A computer? It's scientist? like a computer science a professor, professor who's on okay. ARPANET, yeah. So the professor is like using really human like allegory and metaphor to explain this like technological entity that is not bound by the same like laws of physics as humans are. And so that like, you know, he uses the post office as this kind Mm -hmm. of like metaphor for thinking about information transfer. Um, But you still you know, from the the vantage point of, uh, you know, 2022, where a lot of our lives have been conducted pretty exclusively over the internet for some time in the wake of a global pandemic, yeah. um, the description of the internet feels a bit meager yeah. <laughs> and sort of not quite, uh, not quite accurate. Oh, um, you mean the... You're in Japan, but not in Japan, and there's a post office. Do you want to send a postcard? Like, didn't do it for you? Did <laughs> no. After the last two years with, of our With life? the character of Hirohito, like, just, you know. Yeah. Just throw, throw it out some, there. Like, you know, stereotyping. <sighs> um, caricatures. So I think that, like, that is really interesting. It's interesting as a kind of historical mm-hmm. artifact, too, right? That, like, this is kind of the only sort of heuristic available for explaining what we're on the precipice of. And of, and of course I think probably 
in 82, people didn't really know what the internet was going to become. Although I don't know. I feel like if you're a computer scientist and you're one of the first professors to, you know, be on the internet that you might have a a bit broader of an expectation of where it might go, but I'm not sure. Um, but I think it's that the promise is so vague and uncertain. Yeah. There's like the, the sense of the magnitude or power of what this could become, but perhaps a lack of certainty about what exact, what form that's exactly going to take. And here I'm thinking specifically about the line from Rosenblum, the computer science professor, where at one point it's either Duluth or Philip who asks him, well, where is all this information going or where are we going on the virtual highway? And he just says to the future, which Mm -hmm. is a callback. So here we have this American computer science professor saying that, that is a callback to one or two episodes ago where Oleg, who's the director of science and technology for the KGB at the Washington, D.C. Um, embassy residentura, and he's trying to explain to Arkady what the ARPANET is, and his exact language is, it's the future. So it's just like this vague promise that exists in some near to medium future without the specificity. But the one specific we do get is either feigned or actual disbelief by Duluth that, wow, you mean the military and the scientists are on the same network? There's no way that that could ever happen. There can never be collaboration between American science and the military ever. I thought that line was so fascinating because I was like, is the implication that it's dangerous for the military to be sharing space with the scientists and the academics or is it um is it that kind of tongue-in-cheek like commentary on how intertwined those um institutions are bureaucratically and sort of at the level of resource sharing and and all that kind of thing i i couldn't tell which way we're supposed to read it i think it's i think it's both of those Mm -hmm. things because a few i think it's this season but a few episodes ago there's like this whole plot line where the KGB is targeting scientists because oh. of like nuclear weapons stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think like that to me says like the, like the intertwining is dangerous. And mm-hmm. also this is a commentary on sort of like how intertwined they are. Yeah. So I think, I think both of the sort of like answers you offered are, are in play here. Because previously in this season, the Soviets have abducted a a dissident exile scientist who was working on stealth planes, right? And forcibly repatriated him back to the Soviet Union to essentially become like a forced science laborer um, for them. So like the KGB is on to, of course course they would, like this would be a critique of how capitalism functions. Of course, in capitalist society, the military and knowledge production or the military and industry or the military and science would be working so closely together. So like the KGB has the understanding of this. So that's, I think, kind of given credence to like the both and sort of interpretation. Yeah. I can't believe we made it 19 minutes before someone said capitalism. Honestly, Too it long. is pretty impressive for this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, another slightly tangential, but I think linked kind of way that the Nina plot yeah. um, sort of yeah. speaks to this theme is that like, I feel like that was the most kind of visceral 
representation of the yeah. like of the murky kind of boundary between human animal machine. Yeah. Um, I had never, I've never seen a lie detector described in that way. Right. So when straps her up to it the first time, Oleg, yeah. Oleg. Oleg. yeah. Um, is trying to teach her how to like tell a lie without getting caught by the machine. Right. And he describes what the machine does. Right. So the, the part that wraps around her chest measures, heart rate and breath or whatever. Yeah. The something measures, um, the sweat on your palms. Right. Right. The and finger it thing. It, yeah. And he asks, um, how do you feel? And she says, I feel like, like a prisoner about to be put to death or something like that. And he says, that's the, like something to the effect of that's the purpose of the machine. Right. Like the machines, the whole test is sort of set up to stress you before right. you even get to the right. the kind of function ostensibly of the machine, which is to determine whether or not you're lying. Um, yeah. Which is really fascinating too, because it presumes this like ex- intrinsic link between physiological response and the like truth or lie that you might tell. But, yeah. but I think what's also so fascinating to me is how often it gets represented in pop culture as something that you can, that you can trick. Yep. So the, so like the existence of the, of the machine presumes this like intrinsic link that all popular culture and like spy lore tell us doesn't exist, which is yeah. also really fascinating. But that kind of like visceral idea that like the test tells you the truth about something that it creates is kind of interesting. Like, I don't know, kind of back to the psychic landscape and like mm-hmm. Henry searching for the truth of whatever. It's like, what is uh, back to my initial question about the premise of the show? Like what is even real? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And I think like drawing attention to the embodied sort of relationship to the machine, mm-hmm. which like I'm with you, like I had never, I, I've seen a million of these on various, you know, TV shows, law and orders, whatever. And I'd never paid attention to or had an explanation of like what each piece of the machine is doing. That idea that you introduced that it's like, it creates the situation that it's then going to measure to Mm -hmm. me is like, that's fully the mark of control, right? Like Mm -hmm. that, that it is creating a situation in which like control can be, established in order to call out the moments in which like that is challenged. And so like Mm -hmm. who is in charge or who is in control, what is in control there is like, I think a really interesting question. And this goes in two directions in the scene. And one is this notion of it creates that, which it is, which what it is going to measure or evaluate or judge. Right. So it, I mean, the Foucauldian thing, it like creates its own regime of veridiction in Mm -hmm. the like enactment of the technology or the power or whatever. Um, Or like a more, and Emily would know more about this than I, like the kind of science studies, like when you decide to observe something, the fact that you are observing the tools and the like mechanisms 
and the technologies through which you observe change or affect the thing that is being observed. Like there's that kind of el- that's element. That's like Karen Barad well. 101. There yep. we go. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's the reference I was going <laughs> exactly. for, but couldn't quite remember in the recesses mm-hmm. of my brain. So there's yeah, that the aspect. Presence, also, of the it. presence of the observer. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And, and it's all about like the multiple polygraph scenes are who, in fact, is present who is absently present, right? Because the way that Nina gets through and successfully quote unquote tricks the polygraph machine is by looking at this spot in the wall where Oleg has been like, I will be in this place in the room, look towards me and the camera work and, and Emma Hendrews acting so draws attention throughout the entirety of that scene at every tough moment. She's very obviously looking at that spot. And at one point the camera even follows her gaze to look at the spot on the wall where she has placed Oleg. Can I tell you Yeah, in that scene, I was like, I feel like something really important is happening right now, but because I've never seen any other episode of this television show, I do not know which are lies. <laughs> so the like tension. But, not, but neither does the machine, right? Like you are yeah. in the place of the machine. Yeah. Like yeah. it's the situation as constructed, the determination of what is a truth and what is a lie. And there is no like <laughs> objective reference to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But like, the assumption. really fascinating. I don't know what, <laughs> which ones are, which answers are real or not. <laughs> but also the assumption that, and like, Emily, this goes back to a point that you made also, like the assumption that you, your body tells a truth that your like mind or your consciousness is not, is not willing to or able to tell is like a, an incredibly fascinating and also fucked up like way to think about the relationship between Nina's body and the lie detector machine. Mm-hmm. And well, that's you're not the- so easily into like biological determinism exactly yeah and not the only place that it does that right the scientist describe or the computer science professor describes one of the like networked sites of the arpanet the beast as a quote-unquote disembodied brain right Mm -hmm. so like the mind-body dualism is strong in this episode (laughs) or the very but 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 is it actually dualistic of you know is the thing that we are interpreting to say that the show is pointing out the ways in which like that binary fails. Well, and so if we're thinking about this, uh, this goes in a bit of a different direction, but if we're thinking about like Nina and the polygraph uh, machine as like, and, and sort of Oleg in that scene attempting to help Nina exert control over, um, over her body, over her emotions in order to trick the polygraph, then, like, what do we make of the scene later where, like, uh, devoid of any, like, materials on their bodies, Oleg and Nina are are in bed? Like, what do we make of that scene if this is the way we're reading uh, the human-machine relationship here? I love that question. I think it's really interesting, too, how she sort of teases him about what went down between her and the machine. Right. Yeah. She's like, essentially like, do you want to play with me in the way that I played with the machine or the machine yeah. played with me? I don't, I'm not sure which direction yeah, it yeah, necessarily yeah. goes in terms of like agency or whatever. Who's, who's the object and who's the subject, you know, of the, of that play um, is I think a little murky, but I, I think, and that, that there's something, I don't, I kind of read him as a little hesitant in that, 
moment that she kind of has to then, you know, he doesn't really bite on that, that playfulness. And I think he looks a little kind of uncertain about sort of what she's offering him. And then she's like, all right, enough talking, like, uh, you know, let's just go, go for the phallic um, object, you know? Yeah, literally. <laughs> and, and so, yeah. And so she kind of seems to me to be in control of that situation in a way that I, um, that I was really interesting. I love that reading of that scene yeah, only for, same. for several reasons. One of the reasons is that I think one of the ways to answer Danielle's question is that that, scene between Oyeg and Nina where they like flirt and then have sex in the hotel is the way that the excess that had been attempted to be captured, like, or held back by being in control of her bodies and affects and emotions. That is the way that it gets let out is through having Mm. sex with Oyeg. So that's kind of think kind of one point off of that interpretation, Emily. And then the second is your Nina is feeling herself and feeling in control. And one of the classic themes of Nina in the first two seasons of the Americans is that everybody thinks they are in control of her. And even in these conditions of like extremely circumscribed agency, she figures out every single possible way to like reclaim agency or control over situations and people Mm-hmm. And so I think that like your reading is really spot on of how that's working and, and she's transferring over the, the human machine interactions from the polygraph to like her jokes at Oyeg's expense um, or like invitation to Oyeg in a way that's like, she becomes the Dom in that mm-hmm. encounter. Yeah. Um, just well, yeah, she, like I- top of the machine earlier on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and I wonder. So, in my notes, I have now Nina's running Oleg, which I think <laughs> is the like the spy version of this, right? And I think the I wonder, Emily, just to to build off like your reading of that scene. I wonder if part of what Oleg's hesitation is is he literally trained her to control like this machine, and now is she controlling him in the same way and whether Mm -hmm. that's like fully at the forefront of his brain or just sort of like circulating there for him. The fact of the matter is like Nina has been pretty put off by Oleg's advances up until now. Um, and, and now is like naked in bed with him. And Mm -hmm. so I wonder if there's just part of him that's like, this is, this feels wait, am I the machine? Right. Right. (laughs) What did I, what, what monster have I created? Well, and he says to her, right? Like you're such a good liar or something, Yeah, you know, you can read as flirtatious play, but you yeah. can also read a kind of, um, almost fear there. Right. Yeah. That he's like, wait, yeah, I, I taught a liar to lie better. And now I don't know where's the lie. Especially because he gives her the line earlier in the episode, you have to lie to tell a greater truth. Catch, uh, catchphrase Mm -hmm. for the Americans as a whole is like, (laughs) is that, um, as well. And then, yeah, that gets turned around against him. But, and Oleg like tried several different training analogies or techniques in the span of, you know, helping Nina generate the power to like overcome the machine, right? There's, there's ultimately the sight of it is the anus. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> definitely, definitely no Freud 
situations happening here. Oh my god, there's have so you much done, Freud. Have you done a, a Freud cave? Oh, obviously. on this show, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. We did. We but we only recently did an Ahmed cave, which is like oh. the text of our friendship, mm-hmm. um, which feels wild. Yeah. So. <laughs> There's, I mean, there's so much good stuff. <laughs> so much good stuff. Should we think a little bit about um, maybe shifting from Nina and Oleg to um, Philip and Duluth and just like the like the ARPANET internet plotline? Yeah, I mean, there's the way in which the entire operation is built upon the feigned naivete of Philip's like journalist disguise. Duluth has gotten him in to meet the comp sci professor. They're going to like run an op in this university, which is presumably, I guess, like probably Georgetown GW. I don't know. We're in DC. Yeah. Right? Um, it, mm, it's probably not, I'm Georgetown. Georgetown. Yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway, so like they're going to run this operation and here the, if the, you know, the volatility or the excess was Nina having sex with Oleg, uh, as in the context of the Nina versus polygraph plotline here, the mm-hmm. volatility is like this random computer science student walks back in the room when Philip yeah. is in the act of bugging, you know, taking information off of the ARPANET or installing the Soviet bugging bug the on internet. the ARPANET, yeah, bugging the internet. Um, and Philip just like, and they don't show this, right. They don't depict it and in some ways that makes it kind of more impactful that they, we only see the aftermath on Philip. Like he's, tells Duluth afterwards. Duluth is drunk, like excited, high adrenaline. And Philip's like, I had to kill this person. Yeah. In part because you fucked up uh, mm-hmm. and were a drunk mess. If the volatility with Nina and Oleg comes out as like sex or desire, the volatility here coming out is violence, right? Um, or like being expressed through violence, like, and uh, those the things, Eros I think- and Thanatos of it all. <laughs> <laughs> that's been like a requisite joke in this season of the Americans <laughs> podcast. We literally talked to, that's how we ended the general discussion in the previous episode is yeah. amazing. Nice yeah. So Emily, uh, we knew you'd fit right in. You're perfect. You can come back whenever <laughs> you want. Don't need to have watched the Americans to fit right in on this podcast. No, I'm just going to watch like one episode a season and, and I'll never perfect. know what's going on. Yeah. We're going to, we'll, let's bring Emily and Amy together for like, Oh yeah. That experience. Of, like an all stars episode. Episode. Yeah, yeah, because Amy's also just dropping in occasionally for I love it. Gas purposes. <laughs> Perfect. But then, like, when Amy drops in, then she'll like watch like four episodes because she's like, mm. "Oh, I got into it." And we have to be like, Danielle hasn't seen it, so don't say anything over our yeah. group text. <laughs> Pause. <That's so> funny. <laughs> uh, I think that's a really interesting point to pull out and juxtapose with the Lucia plot too, because there's like that whole bit where. Elizabeth realizes that Lucia has a secret plot, which is to kill yeah. Larrick, and it doesn't come to fruition um, for whatever reason. I think I may have missed that if it was a contrived laid out. plot reason. It's, okay. it's like explained away in two lines. Okay, for Danielle purposes, like it, be, it will become more complicated over the next couple episodes. That's what it looked like. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Lucia is kind of straddling <laughs> the arrows and the natos there. Yes, like, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, little do you know, she 
uh, ran an op where she disguised herself as a political science graduate student in order to sleep with a congressional intern and gain okay. access to the senator's uh, secret office, where in the previous episode, Emily, Lucia and her oh my fake God. boyfriend have sex to a portrait of Ronald Reagan in the congressman's office. And he literally it like is, looks up at the poster and looks says, up at the night, portrait. Mr. President. Yeah. It's like while he's about to come, it's yeah. really, really rough. <laughs> and this like sex is potentially wow. co- is like coerced and like it's it's a, it's a and lot. then and There's then later Lucia like poisons uh poisons the heroin her fake boyfriend takes and kills him. So again, Aristonatus. I think I love her. (laughs) (laughs) Seems right. We'll see. We'll figure it out. Seems right. Wow. I mean, and and think about like the descriptions that Elizabeth uses to Philip about Lucia, right? She's young and impetuous. She burns hot. But then, of course, Philip is like, sounds like someone I know, right? Yeah. Which is the, like, yeah. Lucia is, like, young Elizabeth. Which is a mm-hmm. wild flex. <laughs> yeah. That plot is interesting, too, because of just a very funny feature of it, of how low-tech of a mission <laughs> it is. Um, there's oh, a you paper, mean there's a, the, there's a paper map? Um, but also the plan <laughs> is also really weirdly low-tech. Like, <laughs> yeah. Correct. We'll get you in. You're disguised <laughs> as like a language tutor, and then you have to disable the fence, and we're just going to cut a hole in it. It's real like, like Star Wars. Better spy tech than that in the eighties. No, it's real like Star Wars: A New Hope. Like just like that one one weakness, <laughs> like yeah. one point of weakness. Okay, here's what you have to do: slide down the trash chute, and then press the <laughs> destroy button, and yeah. the whole thing. <laughs> will go away. If you like, jump on that little platform over there and turn down the shield by pulling down the lever, <laughs> it's all good. You can get away. Yeah. It's one of the like cars that doesn't have automated windows though. So you have to roll it down. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> oh my God. But also, I think I missed the point where we learn what that mission was supposed to achieve because there's so much time spent on Lucia's Correct. secret altar mission. So yeah. I was like, yeah. is there some like human machine, you know, technological gain that's supposed to emerge from, from this, or is this a, just a kind of side? Um, what, so what, I, no, what are we spying on? What knowledge do we get <laughs> from this? <laughs> so I think this is something we got in the last episode that is carrying over to this episode, which is that like, they, the U S government is basically like training Nicaraguan Operatives, yeah, the Contras, mm-hmm. right? It's about yeah. the Contras okay. in Nicaragua, and the plan is to use Leric, who maybe tried to kill other KGB illegals who were Philip and Elizabeth's friends. That was the that was the instigating event of season two. But aren't they so deep that even KGB people don't know they're KGB? But they had like these friends that were also KGB agents, which like we sort of learn earlier on in the season, they had like been, it it seemed like they had been here like a little bit longer and had gotten here like a little bit. They were sort of like one grade ahead of them. And, Mm -hmm. and they, they know them because they did like various ops together. So like 
the people who are in the way that I think about it is like, if the people in the residentura, so like Arcadi and Oleg and Nina were tortured tomorrow, they wouldn't be able to tell you who the KGB agents are. Like they can't necessarily identify them, but because KGB agents themselves might interact with one another. And we've seen this a a couple of different times, like they know who each other are because they're like sometimes doing things together. Okay. Okay. So it's like ground level, like recognizes each other, but like in the hierarchy, they, they can't tell, they, they like don't know who each other are. Yeah. Okay. So Lyric is like chaos volatility agent who is a threat to like direct threat to the life of the Jennings and their kids, mm-hmm. but also is their way into, he had been blackmailed because he's gay and is like a high ranking Navy SEAL, Naval intelligence yeah. officer. So he is their way in to disrupt the training of the Contra. So a bunch of like the Contra commanders are going to be at some base in the U.S. in a couple of weeks for the training stuff. Yeah. And so the op is designed to like get in there, assassinate the key Contra leaders. And then as you point out, Emily, Lucia is like, while we're here, I might as well kill Lyric also (laughs) because he's been training the people who have like killed my comrades in Nicaragua. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like historical note, we get the discussion of we're going to illegally mine the harbors of Nicaragua. Right, which mm-hmm. is like one of the few times the like, yeah. international legal system actually worked to do anything semi worked to do anything against a superpower because like that was indeed determined to be illegal. Okay, I have a question about this show that maybe like you won't get to until you finish it. But I is this show supposed to make like <laughs> communism and communists sympathetic to an American audience? or more critical or like is it one of those like no one's a good guy or a bad guy all all people are complicated and like some <laughs> villains have hearts of gold and some heroes are sex I, offenders i think that it's the third it's like everyone's okay. complicated and only at least that's my read of it till now because like the the pieces of like communism that we get are so few and far between mm-hmm. like the sense that Philip and Elizabeth work for the the Soviet Union is like very clear to me, but like what they are and that they are oftentimes fighting against like the 1980s version of America is very clear mm-hmm. to me, but like what their actual ideology is, I feel like comes in so infrequently that it's mm-hmm. like less about that for me. Mm-hmm. So I am not going to say too much because like this will become increasingly important over the remaining seasons of the Americans. But Emily, I'm going to do an obnoxious thing that I do to my students all the time, which is answer your question with a question of like, we who, love like who it's also a classic podcasting technique. Of so. course. Um, <laughs> who like, the who is the, who is the protagonist structurally in this television program? The people who are, pretending to be Americans, but are really KGB. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. So like, I think that the, that like the narrative structure of this show is such as to ask us the very question you posed, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. We are just as audience who have been trained to watch things and on some level root for the protagonist. 
are mm-hmm. put in the position of rooting for the KGB people who mm. are observing, oh, yeah, really good engaging with, and critiquing, but at times giving in to elements yeah. of American consumerism, capitalism, right. so on Red and so scare, forth. Yeah. Blah, so, blah, like, yeah. yeah. So it's the like the and thus I think the narrative structure of the show lands us somewhere in the realm of your third option of Danielle's answer to your question of like yeah. it's actually a mechanism to complicate the notion of a pure ideology that could yeah. be lived out in one's life in a coherent way. Yeah. And I mm. think like the relationship between Philip and Elizabeth is like is the purest version of that conflict, like the conflict or the the it's the place where we see attempts at living one's ideology and how all of these different factors, professional, personal, like psychological, all of these things actually in fact complicate those things. Mm. Beautiful. Anything else we want to give her as an adult? Oh my God. Yes. Sorry. (laughs) I was just thinking about how like, but as a kid, you really miss out on the way it hammers a like caricature of communism as this yeah. like evil. And when I read it as an adult, I was like, this isn't even allegory. It's just like crude <laughs> bourgeois propaganda. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so good though. Huh? Punches you in the gut. Um, well, anyway, sorry. That was <laughs> we weird. often, we, no, 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 no. I, I love it because we are often tempted to, and sometimes given to this temptation to talk about Plato and the Republic and the cave and like, the giver and the Republic, I think like have some of the, like the crudeness of, of the like ideological enactment to me, like is, is a parallel between those two texts. Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because, you know, we could talk about this in the context of science studies too, this idea, this like modern notion of, of knowledge production as like rectifying the lack of yeah. knowledge, right? And that like moving toward light enlightenment, right? We think of as this kind mm-hmm. of uniquely modern uh, project that's connected to imperialism, colonialism, capitalism, all these things. But that that Plato was like, no, you can't see until you come into the light, right? Is like not necessarily typically associated with all these, like the structural components of these yeah. I- ideologies at the level of both building of nations and um, like coming up with institutions to make knowledge about the world. Right. Um, And so I think I, I was really struck by kind of how the show begs some of these questions, even if it's not directly kind of dealing with them in a substantive way. Um, But you're right that the show is always articulating the question and it's just a matter of how, subtle or unsubtle or hidden yeah. or open they are about asking it and posing mm-hmm. the stakes. Yeah. I think that that's right. Yeah. That's probably time and to head to the segments. Yeah. I was just going to, I was just going to make the same transition. So I love it. All right. Yeah. So we start off with um, one of our favorite segments. They're all our favorite segments. So is the Daniel dossier. And of course, like we have the perfect experiment of Emily who has not seen an episode before yeah. or after Americans 2.7. So do you just want to throw out some like wild ideas or possibilities or predictions about these characters that you have met for all of 41 minutes, Emily? 
I had a moment where I was like, oh my God, does this show kill all the hot ladies? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> it seems like the answer is going to be yes, except for Carrie Russell. <laughs> oh God. Um, that was my, that was my first prediction when I was watching it. I was like, oh no, I think all these ladies are going to die. Uh, and I don't know how I feel about that. I share in, in that prediction always. <laughs> um, something weird's going to happen with Charles. Yeah, that seems right. Um, I feel uh, like he, he's going to like not be in a drunk, like the drunk was going to be, I don't know. I feel like there's, there was some like focus on his mental state that seemed like it was going somewhere. And I was like, I think something weird is going to happen with this guy. He's going to like be a double, triple agent for <laughs> someone else who not met or like, I don't know, maybe he's a mastermind of something and he's just playing this weird. I'm like dying to know what happens with Nina and her two lovers. I mean, like who does she love? I don't know. Neither. What do you, what do you think I, happens to Nina? Okay. I think, so she was part of my my worry that all the hot girls will die. So I think I could see I, I have two predictions that are that would cancel each other out. But one okay. one is that um she gets killed by one of her lovers, maybe. Okay. Um the other is that she like double crosses both of them and has like um you know, in the in the spirit of kind of reclaiming agency or whatever you know, girl power, um, like does Nina a thing. Does have girl boss vibes. Correct. Yeah. Lean like in. does a thing. And yeah, she loves Sheryl Sandberg. My prediction is that 20 years down the line, she, she goes, goes into business with Sheryl Sandberg or um, she goes go into witness, together. witness protection and she, she is, is Sheryl, Sheryl Sandberg. Sandberg. Yeah. Honestly, wow. like no lies detected. <laughs> wow. 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 No lies detected. <laughs> <laughs> very good wow 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 um Incredible. yeah so either she gets killed by one of her lovers or she is cheryl sandberg <laughs> yeah this is, one, I mean, this is one of the greatest daniel Vasse segments yet and we haven't even gotten any danielle conspiracy theories yeah these are great Wait, who is the janitor Philip. Oh that was no. Philip. That was Philip. <laughs> okay, I don't know okay. if Danielle's going to be able to compose herself to tell the story that she's about to try to tell. So, Emily, the reason this is so perfect, and I wish, I, it's like, my wish is that this, something like this would happen, and we couldn't have scripted it because it would have ruined it. Infamously, we had all of Danielle's sisters on the podcast for an episode last season. Mm-hmm. One of them, Tori, had never seen the Americans before. She watched it and in like the most genuine way expressed that she had no sense that Philip and Clark, who you don't meet in this episode, were the same person. So the fact that like you That's like really funny. beautiful summer child like raised <laughs> this particular question is oh my god well, it's too good i was really confused because i was like wait was it philip in this scene and then i was like who is this janitor <laughs> I, like, I, I think i just lost the thread there for a second <laughs> no okay. i think like that is one the disguises are some of the disguises are better than others the mm-hmm. clark looks like philip yes this both john and i have notes about like dirtbag philip the janitor this mm-hmm. like version of philip is the like best 
and slash worst way to see Philip because like you don't really see his face mm-hmm. and like he just looks like some creepy dude who's like walking the halls. But like so it, creepy. It is, it's one of Philip's disguises. And yeah. then I was like, wait, why is he telling him to get it together? I was like, I'm I lost I I lost it. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Amazing. Well, at least I'm not alone. <laughs> no, you're in great company. Yeah. Corey's going to be so excited that someone else. Made okay, wait. Also, what? Okay, sorry, I'm getting into the gra- grab bag section. Danielle, tell me, tell me your dossier. <laughs> okay, so I have just one thing in the dossier this week, and then John has a question for the dossier. But like, I don't know. In the opening scene, and we talked about this a little bit earlier on but in the opening scene henry with that telescope i was like this is like chekhov's telescope like something's gonna like come back around with this telescope whether it's in this episode in the next episode i just feel like there's gonna be like some i don't know this feels like another way that like maybe um stan brings nina home and like the telescope is like how philip sees that nina is like at Stan's home. Like, I don't know. I just feel like the Mm. telescope is going to come back into play and I think it's going to be something big. Hmm. Chekhov's telescope. Mm -hmm. And then John, you've got a question for for me. I have no comment on any of these theories. And then I have a question for Danielle. Is Kate or Claudia more sus? Is Kate wearing a wig? No, we don't think so. Or we have, that, like, we have no reason to believe that in yeah. the universe of the show. Okay. Yeah. And like, maybe she is wearing a wig as a human, like to I play the this actor role. is wearing a wig. Yeah. That might be yeah. right. Or, but, or she wears one specific wig when she is meeting these two agents, yeah. like this unit of agents. And maybe she wears a different wig for different agents is also a possibility. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Is Kate or Claudia more sus? So here's the thing. Kate and Claudia are equally sus because I am suspicious of, like, anyone who is an agent of an organized or, like, centralized authority. Like, so I just, like, don't... I don't know. There's, like, something about the... There was always something about Claudia, but there's something about the, like, the way in which Kate sort of, like, trying to pander to Philip while at the same time trying to control him that like rubs mm. me the wrong way and feels like she's about to fuck someone over. So I, I would mm. say Kate and Claudia are equally sus. However, I hate Claudia and I don't hate Kate. So mm. Claudia is more hateable. Yeah. Kate's only sin is being a pander bear. <laughs> oh, <laughs> nice. Well done. Yeah, well I mean the yeah the pandering apology, which is like so transparently not an apology that she makes to Philip, is is something else. Building on the stuff that like she was saying in the last couple of episodes, like we want to, we know that you, the center knows that you weren't happy with Claudia. We like want to make sure that you're happy. You weren't happy with someone who was the most like respected agent or the res- respected handler. So like they're giving you me because like I'm a newbie. Like blah blah blah. I don't know. There's again like back to the question of like what's real, what's not real. Like there's something incredibly insincere about the way in which she deals with Philip. In this episode of Philip and Elizabeth in general. So maybe my answer is Kate is more sus. Wow. That's <laughs> really what I wanted to hear. That was the goal of asking this question. So I feel good about Here it. Here we are. <laughs> Achievement unlocked. All right. Yes. So let's move on to Gloss. And Emily, you said that you had an item you were about to get to that fits in here. Okay. 
Duluth writes like a super important code that is necessary <laughs> to the success of a mission on his hand yeah. in ink. Yeah. And, and then it sw- like sweats it off. It rubs his hands, like his sweaty palms together. Oh my God. It's like, don't send a monkey to do a man's job. This is like, the kind of, so what? one of the running themes, Emily and I have, a, I have a question for you about this coming up in a second is, uh, both Danielle and I would be terrible spies and that's the kind of thing that I would do. Mm-hmm. Except I think I would have the sense to not write it on my hand in the first place. But like mm-hmm. there is a character reason for that, I guess, in that he's having alcohol. He's like an alcoholic and is having withdrawals. A. B, he is I still think he's a fake alcoholic, but I don't know. We'll no, see. he's he's like a he's a real alcoholic. All right, um, fine. And B, he is just super nervous because he's never actually had to do a mission like this high stakes or risky Mm -hmm. or dangerous before. So he's like hot and sweaty in the office. He has to like unbutton his like top button and like mess, you know, pull the tie, loosen the tie a little bit. So it's totally absurd and ridiculous and like kind of contrived for the purpose of raising the tension of this mission. But I suppose it has a character justification. Well, and I think the the way that I was reading this scene was that, okay, if this were me, I'm sure that somewhere along the line, someone would have been like, don't write anything on paper because they can like read the imprints. So like, make sure to either like, make sure to like, not leave any evidence that you wrote down the code or whatever. But that feels like it's giving Duluth too much credit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm like, okay, I guess I can, like, see the justification for writing it on your hand if you don't want to, like, leave evidence that you wrote it down. But that feels like 10 steps ahead of where this dude was. (laughs) Yeah. The ink. No. Who among the three of us would be most likely having the ability to, quote, unquote, trick a polygraph machine, do we think? Hmm. I, my I vote is know. for Emily. My vote is for Emily. I like. I still sweat every time I teach. I don't same. Know. Like, <laughs> same. I've been teaching for a decade, <laughs> and I teach the same text all the time. And I'm like, oh god, I gotta teach lock today. I like, need a Xanax. Like, what? What if like, someone <laughs> finds out that like I don't understand that one sentence in like yeah. chapter eighteen or whatever it is? <laughs> oh yeah. Um. I don't know. I think I would really have to like believe in the greater mission. <laughs> so I would suck at it. I am a critical that, theorist. Squeeze that anus yeah. pretty, pretty squeeze tight. Squeeze that anus real tight. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I want like, surely there's like an internet, a Buzzfeed quiz, right? Like how do you, could I, could, could I, I fake a polygraph? Polygraph? <laughs> John and I are convinced that like we would both be terrible spies. And so therefore like we would, I like I would definitely not be able to yeah. pass a polygraph. So our default I'm answer to you guys is always same. our default answer is always uh the guest, the guest. is the better yeah. spy. <laughs> yeah. Like we played a version of this game with Keller. Like we asked we were like, okay, who among the three of us would be most effective at driving the getaway car? And obviously it was Keller. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I w- no I mean, question. I wouldn't definitely get in a getaway car with Keller for sure. <laughs> I drive the speed limit so like I'm not I'm not a good getaway car driver. Mm. I I'd probably be better at being a getaway car driver than passing a polygraph. Same. Okay. Same. All right, listen. Uh basically what we've decided is when we bring guests on, the it's like trying to assemble 
a team of spies and who mm. plays what role. You, for right now, are the getaway car driver. Great. I and Danielle John, and I have no use. Yeah, <laughs> so we, we're, we just, we're podcasting about it. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, no, Danielle, we're the like cable operators in the closet at the KGB offices, like oh my chain God. smoking bad Soviet cigs and sending messages back to Moscow. Calling up, calling up Amy fun. and Emily and John <laughs> being like, Miss Keller, it's Mr. Uh, your uh, Columbia Records uh, subscription is overdue. Being like, what code is that? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I smashed it on spy. my hand. So, <laughs> I can't. political theorists make bad spies. I was going to say something to that effect. Like, maybe <laughs> if we wanted a really good spy team, we should uh, look to other disciplines or like outside of the academy altogether. Yeah. <laughs> or like, Strauss thinks he would have been a good spy, say but Strauss. like. So he thought that, and that, like, channeled into his whole sh- spiel. It's like oh footnote God. 87 in, in every text or whatever footnote it is. It's like, I want to be a spy. Like, that's what it is. It's like, that's <laughs> so the info funny. drop. If none of us can pass a polygraph, clearly none of us are successful as Nina. But there are some very charged questions. And, Emily, you made this point earlier about, like, what is actually real and what is not and what is actually a lie and what is actually the truth that Nina is trying to tell the polygraph examiner and Stan. And Danielle, what did you think about the insertion of, do you know who killed Amador and do you know who killed Vlad into this series of questions? Yeah, I was pretty, I was confused by the insertion of Amador. I mean, once the question of, of Amador came up, then the Vlad question made sense. Um, but I had like forgotten that that is what much of this complication, especially with, with Nina and, and Stan revolves around Nina and Stan and Arcadi and like all of that. I had forgotten that the Amador thing was like part of what set all this off. Exactly. Um, so, th- but in general, like that question was felt out of place. It, it it's, felt, it felt yeah. very like this is the reading that we gave last week of Stan is doing this, not because the FBI is requiring it or he's more interested in doing it because of his own like concerns about whether Nina is yeah. lying or not, because that's the, that's the question Stan wanted the polygraph operator to ask. Yeah. Because but he's is- convinced that Nina knows something about Amador and hasn't told him. Like that's what so is Stan's suspicions. Were her answers to those questions lies or no, truth? She gave a hundred percent the truth to both the yeah. questions about Amador, who was Stan's former partner, who was killed okay. by Philip in like a scuffle, um, mm-hmm. and Vlad Kasigan. How who many was people does Philip kill in a scuffle? Many, a lot. as he says, okay. as he says, I I killed him. someone. Do you know how many people I've killed? It's like a lot. We've been watching yeah. the show. <laughs> Charles Duluth has it, apparently. Um, but then in some ways, I think the more emotionally salient point is the Vlad question, where Nina, who has not made eye contact with Stan once during the entirety of the polygraph exam, turns and looks at Stan and like gives the iciest yes in response to who killed Vlad. And Emily, the reason this is important is because Stan just straight up illegally, like, kidnapped and assassinated a KGB officer off like a jogging path in quote unquote Rock Creek Park. 
uh, in Washington, D.C., who was Nina's, at that point, like, kind of only friend in the KGB in D.C. Oh, so she knows he did it, and she tells him, yes, I know. And this is, I think, the first time that it's made clear to him that Nina knows that he killed Vlad. Wow. But then she's like, we're going to be together forever. Yeah. Because ultimately she's running him, right? Like that that's... I can't believe she said forever. I was like, forever? (laughs) Forever, ever? (laughs) Forever? Um, We already talked a little bit about the Philip disguise. Yeah. (laughs) the yeah, dirtbag janitor. <laughs> Philip's dirtbag looks are, are truly yeah. iconic in the Americans. So yeah, so funny. We love and I and I also loved the wallpaper in Arcadi's office. Yeah. Um, Emily, a common theme is like John likes the Soviet aesthetics in this show. John loves the is, Soviet aesthetics. This is, this is shout, shout <laughs> what to, a what a what an unexpected I, turn of events. <laughs> I know. I know. This is like the biggest surprise you've encountered in the time uh, as part of the not quite great books family. Mm-hmm. Uh, so love the wallpaper in Arcadi's office, and I don't think we've commented on it before. I I can't picture it right now. What does it look like? It's it's actually similar to in certain ways to the wallpaper of something you also haven't seen, which is Paige's bedroom. That's the particular connection yeah. that I had. Like it's I think Paige's is like more kind of plum and Arcadi's is more like maroon, but there's like mm. this dark uh yeah. patterned wallpaper aesthetic that doesn't feel particularly eighties, as Danielle and I have remarked upon before. It but the, funny. something about the darkness of it like does feel Soviet, <laughs> which I think that's like an aesthetic that's coming back to. Okay. Should we dig into barred nostalgia for the unremembered eighties? Absolutely. So, Emily, crucial question. Without Googling, do you know this reference? No, but oh. I should. Oh, no. So, Danielle. Oh, my God. Danielle, the... the We're our only hope. It's kind of true. Uh, Danielle's going to go maybe now till the end of us podcasting about the Americans in 18 years without knowing. Yeah. I'm really disappointed in myself. <laughs> it's, it's okay. Yeah. Honestly, no one has known it, so... Yeah, but once you eventually learn it, you'll understand why I'm disappointed in myself. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, in, we'll discuss. We'll in <laughs> years when we we'll have you on the episode that we were reveal. We finally reveal it to me. Great. Yeah. Even if it's just a guest appearance, like you're a busy person, you lead lead a busy life. So we give other podcasts, which we'll get to here in a minute. But uh, I love we'll, we'll have you back on for the reveal. Okay. But Emily, do you have? items for bar nostalgia for the unremembered eighties as a segment. I could not get over the tech, the quote unquote tech in this episode. I was dying. Like the paper map we talked about already. (laughs) The like explanation of the internet is just delightfully eighties. Yeah. I I mean, also the writing of a code in ink on your hand. Oh my God. (laughs) I feel like a low tech. I I think it's really interesting too, right? That like we had this whole discussion around how this episode is kind of playing with, you know, animal machine boundaries, um, which is like, you know, typically something that we now associate with kind of high tech, but yeah. the, the way that this tech is represented in this episode is so, so janky, tech. just yeah. so low. Like the, the technological advancements are so low tech. Like I think it's a, 
maybe even a bit of an anachronism. Like, I think the tech was probably better than it's being portrayed. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Because the spy tech is indeed extremely low tech, although maybe there's like spy reasons for that. That is all political theorists we don't understand because we'd be bad spies. But there's like a certain kind of mm, sterile cleanness to like the server room that mm-hmm. is briefly yeah. depicted at the university and stuff like that. So it is drawing that contrast out, I think, um, is something we could say. So funny. I also laughed really hard at just like the I'm still on like the internet description and the like postcards and Japan. Like I I know we talked about it already, but like it just is like such a wild way to even the like the idea of bugging the internet like mm-hmm. to me is like such a wild way to think about hilarious like like that's not and that they just like brought like another set of disk drives <laughs> like that that was yeah. hell they're just like oh just plug this other disk drive in like did you catch when the computer science professor describes is like listing a variety of kind of analogies of like what the internet is and does and call, refers to it as a traffic cop I was like, oh, hey. little ding, 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 Peter Thiel. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh, I, in my brain, I was like, intersectionality, Kimberly Crenshaw, like. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, or Puar. Puar. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that like, okay, what happens at the traffic stop? Uh, I. It's like the best way to teach intersectionality and assemblage yeah. is that one paragraph from Puar's essay. <laughs> oh, my students are still mad at me that I made them read Puar this this semester. But the thing that um, I got the least excitement and most rage about was um, Karen Barad. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, they 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 did okay with Puar, but Barad, they were like, absolutely not. No, I refuse to think about quantum physics and women and gender studies in the same breath. And I was like, fine. I mean, uh, fair. We, I get it. I get it. Um, Emily, you also had something to say about the refrigerator in the house that oh, Henry breaks into. Yeah. I just thought it was like a delightfully cheesy shot. Right. <laughs> um, it's like, it's, I think it's a scene transition. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. And so we like, meet back up with Henry spying through this mm-hmm. like shot of an open refrigerator and the refrigerator is just very eighties and the whole, the, like that stylistically struck me as a, like a very eighties move. Yeah. <laughs> Followed by Henry playing one of the quintessential eighties video game devices of Intellivision, which he had, he's been for a couple episodes this season, like begging his parents to buy him an Intellivision. And oh my gosh. So, the next best solution is spy on the like heteronuclear family and break into their yeah. house and play there in television. Yeah. Very Not normal exactly. thing for the child of two super spies to do. Mm-hmm. So, so normal in my brain. I was like, Oh, he's spying on them. Cause he wants a dog like that. That was the thing he wanted. So it was like, so funny to me that it was like, no, I want the like thing that has literally been, denied to me by my by my father but, but psychically he wants the nuclear family yes. that the dogs like symbolizes oh, or no. signifies right absolutely yeah. but i think that was no, just like he wants my to break was. down the animal machine battery <laughs> that the game signifies <laughs> one with the machine he wants to become cyborg <laughs> we're we're gonna get to cyborg we're almost there here. before we do we need to shout out and this can be very quick our minor character of the week 
Yeah. So I think the three of us are in agreement on this one. Uh, Thane Rosenblum, played by Jeffrey Cantor, who is the computer science professor who offers us the ridiculous description of the internet and post office, postcard, Japan, et cetera, et cetera. He's also so cranky. <laughs> so cranky. I love that about it. Like, <laughs> and, uh, it's like a, I can't believe I have to take time out of my day explaining to you morons yeah. how the internet works. I'm oh going to use God. the dumbest of analogies in order to insult your intelligence, which but I, I, kind I of think love. he's also like excited by the dumbness of his analogy. Like he like I think is getting worked up as he's talking about it because like in the way that professors do like Mm -hmm. getting worked up to talk about their subject matter um even if it's not the way they would choose to do it so there was something i identified with something in him that's a great that totally speaks to me like when you're trying to explain a really complicated argument and a student says is it like insert kind of dumb example and you're like yes and you get all yeah. excited and you trot out exactly yeah. how and then it's like one dumb thing that they minutes, brought up eight minutes illustrates later the, yeah and you're like jumping all around and you're sw- you have like armpit stains <laughs> yeah. and they're just like what you is happening like, <laughs> yeah. i like literally like, have sweat dripping uh-huh. off of my bald head because yeah. i'm so excited about like and then you wipe all the codes off of your hand because you're so <laughs> sweaty political fear is bad spies <laughs> it's true <laughs> Here we are. To, to the point where like i now with some things like you know with when i teach marks in some depth like i have the i i already know what how to prime the question. So I'm like, what did you eat for breakfast? And then I'm like 10 minutes later and that youth is commodity fetishism. (laughs) (laughs) That's like how I feel about explaining the cave to people. Mm. Yeah. I, you know, believe we have gotten to almost, I kind of make a a segue that I've like had planted since yesterday when I watched this episode. So one of the things that Thane Rosenberg gives us in explaining the internet is that the internet is like God. And on that note, let's head to the cave where (laughs) Emily is going to tell us about Donna Haraway. Oh my God. Great. Um, I loved that technology and the human machine, human animal machine boundary was the theme that um, sort of organized this, this episode for you all. And I was thinking about, you know, we talked, um, before about like when Don Haraway wrote the cyborg manifesto and she wrote that essay in 1985. So only a couple of years after this, this episode ostensibly takes place, which is really delightful. Yeah. Um, but I think Haraway writing about what then comes to be feminist science studies in the eighties is like really fascinating to think about just in terms of like situating her work historically, but also that these couple like famous essays, this one, and she wrote an essay in 88 called um, Situated Knowledge is a Science Question in Feminism, where she kind of um, offers a a socialist feminist kind of critique of of vision, right? Back to our um, earlier kind of conversations around the ocular and um, technology and control. Um, But she also like, she creates this field with these two two essays. And in part, um, she talks about the cyborg as this like entity that is already with us, but kind of um, offers her audience a sort of invitation to like play with it. Right. So we are all already kind of machine. Um, And this is, you know, we could think about speaking of like dumb examples that you do with your class, like (laughs) the, 
this, like when you forget your phone at home, right? That yeah. sense of like being somehow either incomplete or like incapacitated, yes. right? That there yeah. are like things that you have to do have to do in your day to be like a productive member of society that you cannot do without your phone. And, but, but it's not literally you, but it, but it is in in some extent, right? Like, and not even getting into the kind of like data, um, conundrum, just like the, in, just in terms of like utility, right. Um, and function, but, and then introduce this whole other layer of kind of like what the phone mines from you and sort of vice versa, how it like sells you back to yourself right through, um, targeted ads and all this other stuff. Right. So like, um, but I think Haraway in the eighties was thinking about really more banal stuff. Like, um, when you get, a fake tooth, if there's something wrong with your tooth, right? Your ability to like functionally chew your food is facilitated by uh, both a technological like process, right? A procedure, a surgery, but mm-hmm. also this, this like entity that is non-human becomes part of like the ways you enact humanness, right? Yeah. Um, and so she like offers the cyborg as a kind of, um, she uses all these different things like as, as like a blasphemous, kind of myth or metaphor or um, kind of call to action to like recognize already how fragile and porous some boundaries that, um, you know, like enlightenment humanism takes for granted as solid are. And that like, we only need kind of like take a different angle on our reality to see that the boundary between human animal or animal um, machine or um, uh, like physical, non-physical is already right? Not a kind of non-existent, um, hard, fast boundary, but they're these much more kind of porous and, um, sort of like, um, fluid kind of boundary mark. I don't even know, right? Like she's not saying there are no boundaries, right? Or that like, there is no, no ways of differentiation, but she is saying that kind of like almost like fetishization we assign to these, these rigid and presumptively natural boundaries kind of structures so much of the logic that by which we regulate control and order society. And so when we, when we look at them from a different vantage point and see that they're already really, really, um, fluid, it reveals the kind of like contingency and, um, fluidity of, of the things that we take for granted as just kind of inevitable and always with us that are in fact kind of these um, sort of random created entities that can be changed. Right. And um, as I think one of the, like I always tell my students, if you take one thing away from like a science studies or a critical theory, it's that like most of the things we take for granted as static and natural are in fact made and they can be remade yeah. or unmade. Right. Um, is sort of the, that's the political invitation, right? Like yeah. when we recognize the contingency of the way that these things are made, we can we can entertain new possibilities for remaking them or unmaking them or something. Um, I'm I'm on a total tangent right now. Sorry, I I could listen <laughs> I to here for it. Talk about Haraway and boundaries <laughs> and making and unmaking for the next seven hours. Like I just. I love that she opens the essay too with like the cyborg is blasphemy and she takes like evangelical Christian, like moral majority political party as like 
the entity where we are blasph- blaspheming, blas- <laughs> what's the, blaspheming. What's the like, blaspheming. Yeah. yeah. I was like, I know there is one. Um, <laughs> and for her, like the reason it's feminist and the reason it's socialist is because of you know, what we were talking before about these, like the, the commodity, right. The commodification of, of these things, but also that this, the problem of all of our social structures and boundaries being presumptively natural means like back to our, this, the earlier thing we were talking about, about like biological, um, uh, determinism, right. And that she's also like, one of the things in, you know, modernity is we biological determinism is coupled with this like technological determinism, yes. right? This idea that yes. we are slowly unfolding uh, along the progressive path toward full enlightenment, which is technological mastery over nature, right? Yes. And so there's this kind of like conundrum that on the one hand, we use nature as a kind of catch-all explanation for the way things are, i.e. hierarchical, um, shot through with relations of power, and yet we're constantly directing the, those relations of power toward mastering nature. And, and yeah. so, and the like double bind is that we see, um, we see like messiness everywhere and take it for granted as the only thing as destined as inevitable, as unchangeable, unfixable. Right. And so I think like what she inaugurates with these essays is like an invitation to, um, like just completely shift how we see what's really going on, right? To to the kind of theme of like who's really telling the truth and what 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 is being seen, right? Like who is um who's trying to get knowledge about what and like for what purposes. Um, so I think like that dovetails so nicely with um kind of what's being explored where where human and machine kind of meet, meld, and get messy in this mm-hmm. in this episode. Amazing. Honestly, <laughs> amazing. I want to click this out and send it to my students when we do heroin. No, but I think you're absolutely so right. And I think sort of bringing us back to where we started our discussion uh, a little while ago, uh, roughly an hour ago, um, in thinking about the relationship between body and machine, between body and technology, between natural and and made, like that that is like precisely where Haraway wants us to be asking questions mm-hmm. like and the for what purpose by whom control over what like and 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 for what or 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 why is like crucial to that question of of like making and unmaking mm-hmm. the world and opening new possibilities be in in part because one of the critiques is both of you point to is the the quest or search or aspiration or establishing as telos some sort of totality or closure or like unification of being or knowledge or standpoint is part of what precludes this denaturalization or precludes this problem problematization of what we assume to be given or commonsensical or natural or whatever. And so Mm -hmm. thus, like I'm, I'm, you know, recalling obviously our initial conversation about the kind of humans, machines, animals part, but also Emily, your question about like whose side is the show on? And in some ways, like maybe Harway is an invitation for us to think about how like the push to totalizing ideological solutions, right. Will reform or enable the reformation of 
relations of power and hierarchy and domination yeah. along the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think her insistence too that like the cyborg as a kind of blasphemous political ironic myth that like inaugurates a, a movement rather than sort of gives us all the answers in advance is playing with that like why do we even feel the compelled to answer the question of who's on whose side, yes. right? That like, what, yeah, why, exactly. like, why are these the questions that come to mind and sort of what does that reveal kind of back to your initial, uh, what, something you said very early on, John, about like how even what we ask or what we can ask our, of our technology or of our sciences is sort of circumscribed by, um, the technology itself or the perspective of the the observer, right? All these kinds of things. So I think, yeah, Haraway's like, Haraway wants us to re to reframe or revisit our even the questions that we ask about the show, right? Like why mm-hmm. why is that yeah. a question that that we feel compelled to kind mm-hmm. of have a settled answer to? Yeah. And I think just to like to to cap this off, like Haraway wants us to push against the idea of friends and enemies, right? Of mm-hmm. that, of like uh, an either or setup in which there is one right answer, mm-hmm. right? Where, and I think like there are moments in this show, in this episode, but in other episodes where like we see some of the characters starting to challenge. Like we meet, when we meet Philip, he is like, maybe, maybe we should just defect. Like maybe we should just become American. Like, fully and that's like a point of conflict between him and elizabeth but i think there's like the the haraway reading of of philip in those moments is like maybe there's something else that is not just us working against an enemy but it is us living a different kind of life Mm -hmm. it's not exactly what philip is after but i think there's a way we can read that Mm -hmm. oh also too right i think one of the reasons why she thinks it's a socialist project is to highlight the kind of complicity of different institutions in Absolutely. consecrating these these myths, right? These and naturalizing these hierarchies. So, like when, um, you know, when the com- computer science professor says it's the military and the academics, you know, like Haraway's like, correct, Obviously. it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And what are we going to do about it? Is kind of like the the so what question that I think Haraway begs for us there. <laughs> Incredible. What, what a truly wonderful journey oh, to the cave. Emily, we, cave. we always ponder very briefly the question, does the person that we take into the cave get to come back out with us and like go for a swim mm. in the lake and take in the sun or are we leaving them down in the cave? So as our guest, you get to make the determination with Donna Haraway. I do love a swim in the, in the sun. <laughs> So yeah. do we. Like that's yeah. yeah. That's the like the I mean, okay, so Haraway's like. gonna say <laughs> Is Why? there really such a hard fast boundary yeah. between <laughs> the cave and the, the swim. cave and yeah. the swim. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? She can move freely between. We'll yeah. we'll give her that power. Yeah, I don't see why not. Um, so, Do like, it. people like Carl Schmidt and, and, like, Machiavelli, we leave in the cave. And Change. people like Ahmed, Foucault, like, they get to come out and, like, have a swim. It's great how this has worked in the past. So, Donna Haraway, okay. like, going back and forth, I think, is only appropriate. Yeah. All right. So, 
One last thing before we head out, and Emily, as uh, we mentioned in introducing you, you are one of the hosts of Stuck in Stony Brook. So can you first give our listeners, um, sure to like vastly increase with our vast listenership, your numbers, um, uh, the elevator pitch for the podcast and a little bit about your co-host there. And then we have yeah. a brief game we would like to play for you as our guest. Great. So Stuck in Stony Brook is a podcast about the Babysitter's Club. Um, it is hosted by three, uh, adults who all read the books when they were children and are revisiting them from the perspective of their various adult expertises. So, um, my co-host, who is also my aunt, Esme Schaller, um, is an adolescent psychologist. So she deals with questions around how the book treats like, um, childhood, childhood development markers, how it deals with variety of kind of not like necessarily mental health issues, but how it kind of treats, um, general sort of approaches to, um, what's typical, what's not typical, how kids learn to deal with difficult situations, things around friendship formations and like learning disabilities and the whole gamut of stuff related to, um, those, how those markers are typically met and atypically met and how the series deals with all, all those, um, that variety, that spectrum. And then Anne Ichikawa is a, um, journalist who in her early career covered a lot of pop culture writing. She used to work for the magazine Elle Girl. And so she deals with all things pop culture in the BSC universe, which often includes like speculating about which real bands Anna Martin based fictitious bands off of and a variety oh, of other things like that. the kind of candy that um, she writes about. What are the sort of like movies that she often references? So it's like Parent Trap and Mary Poppins are like the two biggest kind of yeah. uh, touchstones for Anna Martin. So we do a lot of discussion of that kind of thing. And then I do the like capitalism, feminism takes on, um, <laughs> you know, the nuclear family, the um, gendered labor and all that kind of shit. So it's fun. Uh, we do some, have some good heavy hitting conversations and some very silly ones. Incredible. That's a great elevator pitch. We appreciate it. Um, this is yeah. a, this is a like more professional and more esteemed podcasts than not quite great books. So thank you for like slumming down with us. Uh, <laughs> and, I mean, and, I think it also falls under the rubric of not quite great books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It is. It oh is. Oh my God. Like, the not quite great turn. books universe definitely includes uh-huh. the babysitters club. I spent a yeah. lot of my life reading babysitters club books. Yeah. A lot. So Fully. Emily, we would like to invite you to make, mm, they can be serious or they can be totally flippant. Uh, resonances or comparisons between characters, vibes, moods on the Americans mm. and Babysitter's Club. Like, for instance, is there a Lucia of the Babysitter's Club extended universe? Oh, that's a really good question. Okay, so Dawn is like typically portrayed as the kind of like social justice-y one, but I have found in my reread that she's quite annoying, which is very disappointing because I'm a Dawn. So I'm like, oh God. This she's is like Paige. Really you didn't get to meet Paige, but Danielle, oh, I would not like call you a Dawn. <laughs> um, I'm a total individual. What are you talking about? <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. I feel like, okay, so Lucia's like risk it all for the cause, right? That's kind of like her vibe. And it I doesn't, like it I, doesn't have to be Lucia. I was just so like, you know, are no, there no, any I like characters? That one. Yeah. I, I feel like that's kind of like a Mallory. I get Mallory vibes from, from Lucia. There, that's exactly sure. what I was going to say. Like, I think there's like a, also the like little sister, like younger, like learning her way, but also like very opinionated about it 
feels mm-hmm. like very Mallory vibes. Yeah. Like her dynamic with Elizabeth is like, I just want my parents to take me seriously and I don't want braces anymore. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Any exactly. parallels um, of Oleg the fuckboy in the Babysitter's Club narratives? <sighs> Look, okay. So Logan Bruno is like the the one recurring boy character who has like a perspective on the show. I I my biggest like hot take on our podcast is that I do not like Logan. I think he's like toxic masculinity yeah. incarnate. Um but I I have a really big crush on Christie's boyfriend, was, Bart Taylor. It's mm. like Bart Taylor is like is for me. Yeah. So same. hot. Um yeah. I know he's like 13 or whatever, but uh, for a long time, our podcast group chat was called Bart is hot. <laughs> um, so I could, I could see like a little bit of that, that vibe. He's like really confident and kind of like self-assured, but not, um, uh, doesn't like rely on typically like masculine role assumption to like have a relationship yeah. with a, with a woman. I don't know if, if Oli kind of like meets that criteria necessarily he's definitely like there are moments where he really does but i mm-hmm. i also feel like there is some slipperiness in his character mm-hmm. that like we maybe read in 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 the bart through the bart lens mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i like that i like that yeah so another thing that happens a lot in the bsc is like anytime there's a a new family that of like babysitting charges, there's always like a parallel between something that's happening in the family and something yeah. that's like happening in the girls' lives. So, and there's also this funny dynamic where often like these 13 year old babysitters are noticing a problem with the kids and they get around and talk about it at their meeting and then they go like teach the parents about how to be better parents yeah. to their children. Um, so I feel like there's some kind of parallel with the Henry plot line there. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know what, what yet, but like, yeah, you know, Henry, like, um, Elizabeth and Philip are going to have to learn a really tough lesson about, uh, you know, the psychic landscape of spy family. And yeah. like Henry's going to, you know, there'll be some like heavy, uh, heavy handed kind of like allegory between what happens with Henry and like what's happening with their, their family or their safety or something. I feel like that, I that think that's like, right. um, delivering a message in a not so subtle way is a, is a very uh, stylistically um, stylistic parallel. <laughs> And I then think, it's done specifically through familial dynamics is another, yeah. another vehicle. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. I like the, the structural parallel does feel like really true because oftentimes when we're talking about the episode, we're talking about the sort of like the interpersonal dynamics and the geopolitical mm-hmm. dynamics. And I think like, that's basically the Americans version of like the babysitters club structure that you laid out. Mm-hmm. Who's the Christie? Like who's like the, Type A, no nonsense, like has all the ideas, but also sometimes puts their foot in their mouth. Character. Elizabeth. 100% Elizabeth. Elizabeth is Christy. I would yeah. say that. She's like, religion is the opiate of the masses, <laughs> you moron. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and like, Philip is Marianne. Like, Philip oh. is, like, is the like second fiddle, very smart like really has it all together and like keeps them together, but like is not the ideas man or like at Mm -hmm. least traditionally is not the ideas man. Um, but like still very important in the assemblage. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. Philip is Marianne. And is uh, the trustiest with a sniper rifle as Elizabeth points out. Apparently. Yeah. I mean, if the babysitters club were a spy organization, yeah, I think, 
that Marianne would be like the sleeper, right? She's not yeah. the one who does the handling. She doesn't, but she's like behind the scenes, pull, pulling the literal trigger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And I mm-hmm. think that like Claudia would be the person, Claudia would be the Lucia, the person they like send into the field to like be the interesting person that like, works their way into whatever Mm -hmm. office they need to be in because she's like interesting and dynamic and like people are drawn Mm -hmm. to her i think stacy is the secret like best spy oh a hundred percent i think like stacy would never write a number on her palm and then sweat it off like she would memorize it because stacy has like some sort of device yeah because stacy has all the best qualities of christy claudia and marianne combined combined yep Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. I think and like right. a lot less of the like anxiety around balancing exactly. those d- dynamics of her personality. She yeah, has she'd be a great diabetes. So uh-huh. the diabetes <laughs> thing, like she wouldn't yeah. be able to like hang out in the safe house like Philip did a couple of episodes ago with just like peanut butter and jelly. It like would not work. No, but she yeah. would be the best buy. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. This segment was like more than I ever could have hoped for. <laughs> this is you know. This this is why we brought Emily on for like connections like these. And apparently like Danielle's secret audition tape for a guest spot. Um, the other way around. You win. You get it. Yeah. (laughs) Honestly, literally pick a book and I have read it. (laughs) So, Oh, you know, what's coming up soon is, um, Christy runs for some sort of (gasps) office. Christy for president. yeah, Christy for president, like women in politics. Downstairs I don't in the know. bathroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, all right. You know what? We'll we'll get some. We'll, I'll have my people call you. Amazing. People. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. So I have a real microphone now. So I love it. Oh my god. Well, I think we've come to the end of this episode, which is very sad, but has been a literal joy. So um, fun. So fun. I really, so- really like taking painstaking detail on something that I have very little <laughs> background knowledge for and just coming up with many, many takes. That's the truest <laughs> political theory dynamic 100%. of it, of them. Mm-hmm. It's well, like, like you made, I was going to say, you made the joke before of like, Oh, like is this episode a text? And it's like, Oh, could we like close read this episode please? And like mm-hmm. superimpose various themes and then also put it in conversation with other political thinkers. Like, hold my beer don't, don't mind if i do yeah <laughs> yeah it's not like uh, you know we would ever use our political theory skills to like randomly write an article about non-expertise areas like medieval history or democratic theory or silicon valley or yeah uh, second amendment or anything like that never would mm-hmm. that be attempted by political i love it i love it i mean here we are <laughs> Um, I think Emily, I mean, if you'll, if you'll do this, like we would love to have you back on the podcast. Yeah. I would love to. This was so fun. Thank you so much. We're going to create a super group with, uh, with Amy and, uh, you know, and make that happen. Beautiful. I love it. Okay. So next up in the feed, we have Moon Knight episode two, Summon the Suit. That will drop on Tuesday. And then on Thursday, American Season 2, Episode 8, New Car will drop. Or maybe we'll get some answers to some of the questions we raised here. Thanks, as always, to producer Amy. Thank you so much, Emily, for joining us. Thank Um, you. Yeah. We can't wait to have you back. And uh, that's all from us here on Not Quite Great Books. The TV Podcast. 
Thanks for joining us on another episode of Not Quite Great Books, a TV podcast. It was created by Daniel Hanley and John McMahon, and indirectly, producer Amy. You can find us on Twitter at NotGreatBooksTV. You can email us at NotGreatBooksTV at gmail.com. If you have comments or questions that we might potentially read and respond to on air, subscribe, download, rate, review us, tell your friends to find us at Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, and Amazon Music, and Google Podcasts. We would like to thank Less FM for Electro Trend 60s, which is the music that you heard at the beginning and you are hearing right now. Until next time, go play some racquetball.